So I just keep hearing the words. I don't feel like worshiping right now, so if I do, that makes me a hypocrite. And that's actually not at all what it is. That's just the voice of the enemy or your flesh telling you that. Because your spirit man always wants to worship. So maybe you're not used to opening your mouth when you don't feel right. But all you're doing, it's not being hypocritical. It's just you're standing with your spirit instead of your flesh in that moment. So instead of feeling like you're a hypocrite because you don't feel like it, why don't you stand strong with your spirit, the part of you that wants to worship God. Don't stand strong with your emotions. Don't stand strong with your flesh. Don't stand strong with the voice of the enemy that would hinder you because he knows the victory that is yours as you really let go and worship him. He knows that victory and he doesn't want it for you. And your flesh hates it too because unless you like to sing. But if you don't like to sing, your flesh hates it. doesn't want to do anything. So that's a lie right now. And if that is a lie that you've been believing, then right now just repent quickly. Just say, Father, I'm sorry. Lord, I choose to stand strong with my spirit, man, and not with my emotions and not with how I feel. doesn't matter what age you are either. Any age you can begin to worship God. You can be a, a born-again, new baby believer, and you can worship, and it's perfect praise every time because it's coming from your spirit. But sometimes you have to shut down that voice of the flesh and that voice of those emotions. Override them and stand strong with your spirit. No, you're not a hypocrite. You're standing with the right part of you. You're standing with the Spirit of God and that life in you. And you're standing for the truth and for righteousness and for your King. So really what you're doing when you begin to worship, when you push past those emotions, is you're being loyal to God instead of loyal to you. So Lord, I just thank you this morning. Lord, you are looking for those who loyal to you, Lord. We're looking for those whose hearts are sold out to you, Jesus. You might wonder why there has been this uh, constant theme, an emphasis, if you will, on praise and worship over the years. And it is, in part, because God can give us a revelation of Himself through praise and worship in a way that it won't happen any other way. He's trying over and over to get us to understand that we absolutely must go beyond our feelings. Go beyond all the stuff that would impact us to not want to worship. He sees on the inside of us our potential when it comes to experiencing Him in praise and worship. These exhortations and the prophecies that have come throughout the years concerning praise and worship 
He can't do that in every church. Because to some churches, if they were to hear that, they would possibly interpret it to mean just sing more songs out of the hymnal. They would not know. They haven't had teaching on praise and worship, the likes of which we've all had here. And so therefore, God knows that there is a foundation for these exhortations and prophecies concerning praise and worship. And, and at that point, it's all up to us. We either do it or we don't. And I know that there are many Christians who really do not think they need to. Or they don't think there's any value to it. And then it goes on into the self-consciousness and all this other. God is doing everything He can to get us to break this. He's not going to do it. But He will present to us the reasons why we should. And that's what He's been doing. And I know, you know, I've shared many times how that I had to go through that struggle myself to break the resistance in me to become somebody who would worship. And I'm still not at a place in my praise and worship where I know I should be. I'm continuing to grow in that. But this is why he keeps saying this. Just think. You know, if you had been the kind of worshiper that God has encouraged us to be for the last 25 or 30 years, where do you think you'd be in God? I know that I would be much further along than where I am simply because of the way His presence will manifest and the way that His, His glory will manifest, the way He will move during praise and worship. That's why this happens. He's trying to get us, I guess you could say, in sync with Him in the way that He wants to move. It is that critical. So if you truly want to understand God better than you ever have before, you know, praise and worship is absolutely a key. And you really shouldn't need promptings. What I mean is this. A worshiper will worship without somebody saying, let's worship. You, you will do it and look forward to it. So again, take these things to heart. At that point, it is between you and God as to whether or not you'll do this. But I encourage you, press beyond whatever you feel. Release what your spirit wants to do and be a worshiper. Well, let's see here. Why don't you turn to Philemon? <laughs> you say, where? That's in the New Testament. Yeah, it can be easy to get Philemon and Philippians confused, but turn to Philemon. Really short book, just one chapter. It's only 25 verses. We're going to read something there in a few minutes. The word relevance means this. Relation 
to the matter at hand, the quality or state of being closely connected or appropriate. And the word relevance comes from the word relevant. The word relevant means relating to a subject in an appropriate way, having significant and demonstrable bearing on the matter at hand, affording evidence tending to prove or disprove the matter at issue or under discussion. All Christians have relevance. There is no exception. 100%. All Christians have relevance. But the question is, what kind of relevance? What kind of relevance? We make a lot of assumptions because we're born again. And quite frankly, you know, here I am, um, at my age, my years of pastoring and my years of serving the Lord, my observations have been this. The majority of Christians make very wrong assumptions simply because they're born again. It's really interesting because when a person is first born again, they really don't know what to do, unless maybe they've been growing up in church and resisted uh, being born again until, you know, later on in life, whatever the deal. But people out in the world, people that really have not been exposed to Christianity, if they get born again, they really don't know what to do or, or how to respond or whatever. I mean, they have a new nature that helps, but they need guidance. And we all understand that. And so what happens is, over time, those Christians will develop concepts and ideas and assumptions about themselves simply because they're born again. And that's all based on information that's provided to them. Now, there are three types of relevance when it comes to us as believers. The first one is what I'm calling world relevance. Now, I'm going to read some things and some people might say, well, you know, you just, you're just setting yourself up for a lot of problems. No, not really. Well, it depends on how you look at it, I guess. But listen to this. Uh, this came from an article in the Washington Post this month by a man named Mark A. Thiessen. I don't really know anything about him other than the fact that he wrote the article. Now, I'm going to read this to you. By now, most Americans have heard of critical race theory. But many do not know just how radical or pernicious CRT, critical race theory, is. Because, as a new study from the American Enterprise Institute shows, the media does not explain its key tenets. So I asked one of our nation's preeminent historians, Princeton University professor Alan C. Guelzo, to explain why it is so dangerous. Now, you know what the problem is right now? You know what the problem is? 
the moment you say critical race theory, immediately people are dividing. The moment you say that. And I'm going to be blunt, and if it makes you mad, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make you blunt. But in the society wherein we live, and I know this does not apply to 100% of the people, I understand that. But you're going to have a lot of people who, on blacks on one side, are going to immediately have an idea about critical race theory. Then you're going to have whites on another side, and then you're going to have people somewhere in between, everybody having ideas about what that means, what it represents, and what I'm about to say. Now you know I'm right. People, well, I'm standing behind a pulpit, so you're, making, you're probably making some good assumptions right about now. But I'm just going to read the rest of this to you. Critical race theory, now remember this fellow, Alan C. Guelzo, he's an historian, Princeton University professor. Critical race theory, Guelzo says, is a subject of critical theory that began with Immanuel Kant in the 1790s. Now, if any of you know about Immanuel Kant, and I don't know much about him other than to know he had some really different ideas about things. Critical race theory, Guelzo says, is a subset of critical theory that began with Immanuel Kant in the 1790s. It was a response to and rejection of the principles of the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason on which the American Republic was founded. Kant believed, quote, reason was inadequate to give shape to our lives, end quote. And so he set about developing a theory of critical, no, developing a theory of being critical of reason, Guelzo says. But the critique of reason ended up justifying ways of appealing to some very unreasonable things as explanations. Things like race, nationality, class, he says. Critical theory thus helped spawn totalitarian ideologies in the 20th century, such as Marxism and Nazism, which taught that all human relationships are relationships of power between an oppressor class and an oppressed class. For the Marxist, the bourgeoisie were the oppressors. Now those were the people who had. Not the people who had not, but your upper class. Those were the people who were the oppressors. For the Nazis, the Jews were the oppressors. And today, in 21st century America, critical race theory teaches that whites are the oppressors. In CRT, quote, all white people are instinctively white supremacists, end quote, Guelzo says, adding, I say instinctively because this is not a function of reason. This is why its advocates talk about systemic racism. Now, remember that word, systemic racism. You're going to hear it again in a little bit. A CRT term that has crept into our public discourse and has even been embraced by President Biden. Systemic sounds like systematic Except, of course, that it isn't, Guelzo says. When you try to find something that is systematic, then you have to go find evidence. 
But systemic implies something so deep and so instinctive that you're not even conscious of it. That there is an instinctive bias built into people of certain colors. CRT rejects democracy as a relic of enlightenment reason, Guelzo says, and it argues that white people use tricks like democracy and the search for truth to exploit and oppress and dominate people of color. Because critical race theory rejects reason, it cannot be questioned. Under this rubric, Guelzo says, the only purpose of questions is to serve the interests of the oppressive class and any answer you come up with which does not speak in terms of some hidden structure of oppression can simply be dismissed as part of the structure of oppression. For example, if you question whether all white people are oppressors, the questioning itself is an example of how you're in on the impression. While most Americans oppose racial discrimination, critical race theory embraces it. Ibram X. Kendi, remember that name. Ibram X. Kendi, one of CRT's leading advocates, openly declares, quote, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. That's, that's a, like a contradiction. And why is this dangerous? As Richard M. Weaver famously said, ideas have consequences. Critical race theory has led to the rise of ideologies that have killed millions. Quote, we have paid severe prices at those moments when people have lost faith in reason. Guelzo says, those are the moments when genocide rears its hideous head. This is why CRT is so dangerous and must never be used to indoctrinate America's children. You may be thinking, thank God my kids are safe. Your kids are not safe. And guess what? Neither are you. And it doesn't matter who you are or what color tone is your skin. It doesn't matter. You are being impacted by this some way, somehow. Now listen to this. We're continuing with world relevance here. This was just released last week. The Salvation Army wants its white donors to give it more than just money this Christmas season. Its leadership is also demanding they apologize for being racist. It's a part, though, it's part of a push by the Christian Charitable Organization. I'm going to stop right there. Now listen to me. Listen to me. The Salvation Army is not a Christian organization. It, is, it, it was. Way back in 18-whatever when William Booth started it. The, the Salvation Army does a lot of good, helps a lot of people, but the Salvation Army is not a Christian organization any longer. And by the time I finish reading this, you're going to understand more clearly than ever. The Salvation Army wants its white donors 
to give it more than just money this Christmas season. Its leadership is also demanding they apologize for being racist. It's part of a push by the Christian charitable organization to embrace the ideas of Black Lives Matter, an activist group working to, among things, dismantle white privilege and disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. The Salvation Army's Alexandria-based leadership has created an International Social Justice Commission. Why in the world would you need to create an International Social Justice Commission if all you're doing is spreading the gospel and collecting money to help people? Do you understand that? Well, let's continue. It's created an International Social Justice Commission which has developed and released a, quote, resource to educate its white donors, volunteers, and employees called Let's Talk About Racism. This is a publication the Salvation, has come out with, the Salvation Army has come out with. It asserts, now listen to this. This is coming from the Salvation Army, which is supposed to be a Christian organization. It asserts Christianity is institutionally racist, calling for white Christians to repent and offer a sincere apology to blacks for being antagonistic to black people or the culture, values, and interests of the black community. Yep. You, all of this I'm reading to you, you can find it on the internet if you want. I mean, this is another... Anyway, I need to continue. Many have come to believe that we live in a... Now, this is from the publication from the Salvation Army. Many have come to believe that we live in a post-racial society, but racism is very real for our brothers and sisters who are refused jobs and housing, denied basic rights, and brutalized and oppressed simply because of the color of their skin, one lesson explains. There is an urgent need for Christians to evaluate racist attitudes and practices in light of our faith and to live faithfully in today's world. In an accompanying study guide on racism, Salvation Army authors explain that all whites are racist even if they don't realize it. Quote, the subtle nature of racism is such that people who are not consciously racist easily function with the privileges, empowerment, and benefits of the dominant ethnicity, thus unintentionally perpetrating injustice, end quote. It says, Sunday school curriculum that uses only white photography and imagery is an example given that perpetrates injustice. We must stop denying the existence of individual and systemic institutional racism. Remember what word I told you to remember. Okay, here it is. It's embraced by the Salvation Army. They exist and are still at work to keep white Americans in power, the lesson says. These systems give privileges to white people. Let's talk about racism pushes arguments identical to those of leading critical race theory purveyors Robin DiAngelo and Henry Rogers, also known as Ibram Kendi. Remember who I told you to remember. Whose work is recommended by Salvation Army authors. DiAngelo and Rogers, also known as Kendi, claim that any observable difference in relative behavior or accomplishment between racial groups is due 
to the inherent racism of whites. Okay, what about effort? What about education? What about doing your best? Look, every one of us in here, we know people who are non-white who have proven themselves because they worked at it. And any... George Washington Carver. You know, look what he did with the peanut. All of the developments. The, the point I'm making is this. This is coming from the Salvation Army. And what I said a little bit ago about whether you know it or not, you're being impacted by all of this. All of it. And it's so very subtle. Well, let me continue. Let's talk about racism pushes arguments identical to those of critical race theory purveyors Robin DiAngelo and Henry Rogers, also known as Ibram Kendi, whose work is recommended by Salvation Army authors. D'Angelo and Rogers, also known as Kendi, claim that any observable difference in relative behavior or accomplishment between racial groups is due to the inherent racism of whites arguing against a traditional American concept of equal opportunity in favor of the Marxist-inspired goal of equality of outcome. Structural racism is the overarching system of racial bias across institutions and society. These systems give privileges to white people, resulting in disadvantages to blacks, reads a Salvation Army lesson. Proponents of critical race theory don't believe whites, Asians, or Hispanics can avoid being prejudiced against blacks. They want them to demonstrate what they call anti-racism in favor of blacks, helping to establish lower standards for them than they do members of other racial groups or making cash reparation payments to blacks as compensation for alleged previous racism. Okay, now listen, listen to what this is saying. Listen closely. Establish lower standards... Well, they want them to demonstrate what they call anti-racism in favor of blacks, helping to establish lower standards for them than they do members of other racial groups. All right, you may not know this, but that has happened in the city of Dayton. This, the civil service exam. You had a group of what you would call critical race theory people rise up and complain the test is too hard, blacks can't pass it. And so what happened is they changed the exam so that basically anybody could pass it and it won't matter if you even graduated from high school. If you've never taken a civil service exam, you don't know essentially what it encompasses. All right? You have to have some kind of schooling to be able to pass the exam. I, I've taken it before, years ago. <coughs> Excuse me. And as far as the reparation payments, you know, you can come to me and say, well, you know, you owe so much, you know, reparation. Hey, I have no idea if my great-grandpappy was a slave owner. And not only that, I don't... See, here's what a lot of you don't realize. And if you, you're going to have to go... You're going to have to find books 30, 40 years old or older... To really understand what happened as far as slavery is concerned. What you have today is groups, the CRT people, or the, the 
BLM people, whatever, they're going to tell you that anybody throughout American history who owns slaves, has, you know, they should be totally discredited. And that's not at all true. Because when you understand the way society worked back then, a black person was susceptible to being captured and branded as a piece of property by basically anyone. Now, I'm, that was terrible. So in order to help protect blacks, you had a lot of whites, plantation owners and whatever, they bought blacks and made them slaves, but they treated them like people. They set up schools. They made sure they were educated. Some of them even helped the blacks go to colleges and universities to get their degrees. They made sure they had medical care. They made sure they were fed. They did not beat them. They did not, uh, 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 well, they didn't treat them horribly the way we're led to believe. It wasn't like that. And I can tell right now there are some people who would hear this and think, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm telling you, you don't know what you're talking about. You have not done your research. If you just buy into all the stuff that you're hearing, you're the one that is in error. If you do, re I have a set of books at home. Now, I haven't done any research on this as far as the um, uh, racism aspect is concerned. However, this set of books is incredible because uh, it's called, I think, The Annals of American History. And it goes all the way back to, uh, like, pre-Declaration uh, of Independence and so forth. It actually has copies of documents written by what we would call our forefathers. It's some of the most accurate historical information you will find anywhere. And you can still purchase this. You have to hunt for it, because I don't know if it's still in print or not. But if you want truth, you can't read what's out there now. You're going to have to go back in time and read. There are people that are telling you now. They're saying Thanksgiving had nothing to do with thanking God for His provision. That's being taught now. Well, that's not true. And they're telling us, well, what you always were taught, that's what isn't true. No, it is true. If you have access to accurate information. All right, let me continue. Um, talking here more about the Salvation Army publication. Quote, Stop trying to be colorblind. While this might sound helpful, it actually ignores the God-given differences we all possess, as well as the beautiful cultures of our black and brown brothers and sisters. Let's talk about racism, explains. Instead of trying to be colorblind, try seeing the beauty in our differences and welcome them into your homes, churches, and workplaces. Being colorblind also ignores the discrimination our black and brown brothers and sisters face and does not allow us to address racism properly. That sounds good on the surface. But listen to it again. Instead of trying to be colorblind, try seeing the beauty in our differences and welcome them into your homes, churches, and workplaces. In other words, it doesn't matter what they believe, how they live, who they're living with, what they do Monday through Saturday, Welcome them into your church and appreciate the differences that exist. 
Do you understand? Are you listening between the lines here? Now listen to this. Founded in 1865 in London, England, the Salvation Army is both a Protestant church, a Protestant Christian church, uh uh-uh, not no more, and an international charitable organization. That it is. Its first red kettle was set up in Oakland, California in 1891. You know what the red kettle is? Where they stand there at the stores and they ring the bell, or you know they play an instrument, and there's the kettle, and they want you to put money in it. I'm telling you right now, I will no longer be doing that. The Salvation Army will not get one more penny from me. And this church will no longer... Now, we've done this in the past, but this church will no longer send money to the Salvation Army. Now, get it straight. We're not going to do that. Because we are not going to support this. But I want you to hear something else. The National Advisory Board of the Salvation Army, all right? National Advisory Board members include Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, Charter School pioneer J.C. Huizenga, and Rodney Bullard, the president of the Chick-fil-A Foundation. That one shocked me. And if you want to find out who else is on that board, just Google Salvation Army National Advisory Board members. And you'll pull up a website that lists all the people who are part of it. Some of the names might shock you. Because it says that the Salvation Army's Alexandria-based leadership has, is behind all of this. That means these people on the board they know. Now, if I were on the board of that, and all the rest of the board members voted to go that direction, I would be resigning my position immediately. I would not be a part of that. And if people would ask me why, I'd tell them. Because this, it's the Salvation Army. Salvation is re- the whole method, source, and so forth of salvation is, is revealed to us in Scripture. So therefore, if I'm going to be a part of the Salvation Army, the Salvation Army should be lining up with Scripture, but it's not. So therefore, I will not be a part of it. Continuing on with this whole thing of world relevance. Now, everything that I just read, there's so much more. Everything I just read. Some of you didn't know this. And I don't know about your internal reactions to what I just read, but you need to understand that this stuff is working to pull people away from Jesus Christ. That ultimately is what this is about. Because there are people even today who are telling us the Bible is a racist book. Which is interesting because (laughs) if you just read it, you know, anyway... Yeah, the Bible is a racist book. No, the Bible is not a racist book. But this year, all right, um, and this, what I'm getting ready to read to you, came out in June of this year. Now, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention has been known as being an extremely conservative uh, denomination. Every year they have an annual conference 
this, this year, the conference was held, I believe it was in Nashville. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people show up for the conference every year. The, um, I forget what arena it was held in, but from what I read, there were over 14,000 people in the arena for the meetings. Now, okay. Now, this year, at the conference, at the, um, the, S, the Southern Baptist Convention Annual Conference, listen to this. At issue, at this year's meeting, was a resolution passed in 2019 that addressed critical race theory and intersectionality. I'd never heard that word before. And the look you're giving me is most of you haven't heard about <laughs> What? Say it again slowly. Intersectionality. Okay, so what is that? Here, here's the definition. Intersectionality. The interconnected nature of social organizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. Who comes up with this stuff? That sounds like something a lawyer wrote. All right, so now, now that you know what intersectionality means, let me read this. At issue at this year's meeting was a resolution passed in 2019 that addressed critical race theory and intersectionality, stating that these schools of thought could be employed as analytical tools subordinate to Scripture. Do you understand what they just said? That Scripture comes first, but underneath Scripture, we can teach our people about critical race theory and intersectionality. That's coming from the Southern Baptist Convention, and it was a resolution that was passed in 2019. And you don't think stuff is going on in the body of Christ? You better believe it. Now, I received a letter from a, uh, a friend of mine, extremely educated. He's got at least one doctorate. Uh, he's been involved with one university, the establishing of a Christian school. Uh, last year, I think it was, he retired from a government job in Washington. I won't even go into everything this guy has done. But I will tell you this, about 20-something years ago, he predicted that there would be a plague released in the world that would kill people all over the world. Now, I'm not going to say any more beyond that. The guy was involved with an intelligence agency, so you know we can talk about that later. But... Um, I received this letter from him this month. And he said, a month ago, he's from this area, he said, a month ago or so, I attended a presentation about the importance of worldviews. According to the speaker, George Barna. How many of you have ever heard of the Barna reports? Okay, so this isn't some, somebody that just walked in and said, hey, I know what I'm talking about. This is someone who's been established for a long time. According to the speaker, George Bonner, Barna, research shows that a person's worldview, world the fundamental filter that guides all of our decisions in life, is fully developed by age 13. The process begins at 15 months of age. Okay, that alone should tell you why God said, train up the children the way they should go. 
and why God said, parents, you teach your children the Word. I mean from birth, you teach them the Word. So there's a biblical precedent for this. And that people essentially die with the same worldview. Essentially. Not always, but essentially. During my visit to Springboro, I realized how important those developmental years were to my worldview. My Midwest small-town ethical values, my patriotic inclinations, my conservative political preferences, and my fundamental Christian spiritual beliefs. Interestingly enough, Barna's research shows that a true biblical worldview is the dominant perception of only 6% of the American population, although 51% think they act and decide out of it, and the percentages are steadily deteriorating. In other words, you have 6% of the people who think they're living by biblical standards, or or who actually are, but 51% think they are living by biblical standards. So how in the world did did this 51% come up with the idea they're living by a way they really aren't living? Their, Their thinking has been impacted by what's happening in society, not by the Word of God. And there are people in this, in this, who are part of this church. This has happened to you. Now, now look over in, uh, you're here in Philemon. Okay, look in, uh, well, it's only one chapter. Look at verse 22. But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So he identifies these people by name. You know, you've got Epaphras and, and uh, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas. He identifies them as being his fellow laborers. Now look in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And here in Colossians chapter 4, just go ahead and take a look at verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Luke, also Lucas. So here we see another reference to two of those people, Lucas and uh, Demas. They're with Paul. Paul wrote Philemon. Paul wrote uh, Colossians. And so these guys are with him. Now look in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 9. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Now look here. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. So in two places, Demas is identified as somebody who's walking in fellowship with the Apostle Paul as he's going out and ministering. But then something happens, and Demas... The Apostle Paul writes, to the Second Timothy is the last book that the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, Demas has left me. He's turned away from me. Well, why did he do that? It's because he tells you right here, having loved this present world. Now, what he doesn't say is that Demas has gone back into horrific sin. He just says that Demas has loved this present world. So I guess you can 
uh, interpret that however you want, but the bottom line is Demas was impacted by things in the world that led him to develop a mindset or a worldview of living. And he walked away from being with the Apostle Paul, and it doesn't say that he's gone off into ministry, he just loved this present world. Now, James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Friendship with the world is enmity with God, and that a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And we look at that and we think, okay, well, you know, that's talking about all those sinners. No, he's writing to Christians in this. And as far as this whole worldview, um, as far as it goes, relative to the body of Christ, all right, it includes a refusal to accept God's word as truth. For example, Genesis chapter 1. God created seven-day creation week. Six days of work, one day off. That's the way it is. And yet you've got Christians who want to fuss about that and say, well, I don't understand how that can be. Well, you're not God. And if God says He did it, He did it. Well, yeah, but science says, poo on science. What does God's Word say? What's the standard of the Word of God? And as long as you turn on that, you have a worldview. Even though you stand up and say, I'm born again and Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. If you reject the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation as being truth, and you basically are telling God He doesn't know what He's saying. Well, I need, you know, I need science to prove to me that an axe head can float. No, you don't. You have the Word of God. Well, I need science to prove to me that somebody born blind can miraculously receive their sight. No, you don't. They don't need an eyeball trans, uh, you know, a transplant. The Bible says it can be done. You're the one with the worldview, not me. Because if you refuse to accept what is recorded in Scripture as truth, then there is a degree of your existence which has a worldview as opposed to a biblical view. When you reject God's holy standards, when you, well, love is love, then you have a worldview, not a biblical view. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You say, well, I don't, even, I don't know what that means. Okay, holiness is defined by Scripture. Pretty simple. It's not complicated. It's not at all complicated. But a worldview says, well, we need to be more understanding. And so what happens is, you have churches today that are referred to as inclusive. Well, we need to understand, we need to embrace people's differences. Isn't that what we just heard? Yeah, we need to embrace their differences. No, you don't. There is only one difference, and that is the difference between sin and saved, and by the Bible's definition of saved. That's the difference. You have performers, Christian performers, who are embracing this. If I were a big-time Christian singer, had all kinds of recordings out there, and the church I attended started moving into that direction of you know, the critical race theory and relevance to society, blah, blah, all that kind of stuff, I wouldn't have to pray about it. I would be gone. God, do you want me to stay in this church that's leading people away from you, even though they stand up and talk about you every Sunday? I wouldn't have to pray about that. 
I would know I would have a conscience on the inside of me that would be saying, dude, pack it up and get out. And I'd be gone. Uh, listen to 2 John chapter 1, verses 9-11. through 11. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds." In other words, if you're in a church like that, and you put money in that offering plate, you're bidding them Godspeed. Godspeed, it's like declaring a blessing, standing in agreement with, so on and so forth. Demonstrating an appreciation for what the other is doing. When you begin to support organizations and churches that are like that, then God says you're a partaker of their evil deeds. See, what happens is you have a lot of Christians who have this assumption that it doesn't matter. That you can, you can do these things. I can be in a church like this. And everything's going to be okay. No, it won't be okay. Not according to the Word. And so what's happened is you now have this worldview. And you have Christians all over the place who have embraced a worldview and they say they don't. They, they will argue with you that they don't. And yet, if you vary from that standard that we see right here in the Word of God, then you know what? You're the one that's at fault, and you're the one who has the worldview. God does not have a worldview. Okay, world relevance is one. What's the second type of relevance? It's church relevance. And you think, well, what's wrong with that? Church relevance, okay? Here's church relevance. It's when you exalt the teaching of a denomination or a church above the unchangeable standard of God's Word. I talked to a pastor one time. He was going through some things, and basically the denomination he was in, they weren't being fair. And it really was not good. And I said, well, you know, you don't have to stay in the denomination. You know, you've been pastoring for a long time. You can step out. And, and he said, no, no, uh, uh, no, the de- this denomination has been good to me. If it weren't for this denomination, I don't know what I'd have. And I'm thinking, you just told me about the issue that's going on here, and now you're telling me the denomination has been good to you. No, it hasn't been good to you. Um, I know of a person talking about church relevance. This is where you embrace the teaching of a church or denomination above the standard of God's unchanging word. There was a person who um, left what you might want to call a full gospel church or you know, whatever your favorite kind of term is. Left a full gospel church to return to a church system that teaches people to pray to saints. Why? Because he felt secure in that system. Born again, spirit-filled, but he felt secure in that system. See, that's church relevance. There was another one. Pastor sat down with somebody and, and the person was explaining, had been teaching about giving and how, you know, you're not going to be cursed with a curse and go to hell if you don't put 10% in the plate, so on and so forth. 
And this pastor had taught this for years. So this pastor sits down with this, this other person, this teacher, and the pastor said, I see what you're teaching. I understand it. And um, I realize it's true. But if I start teaching that in my church, the people will stop giving. <laughs> in other words, I would rather stand up and teach a lie than teach the truth that I know. Why? Money. What about the part where God will help you out? Besides that, if you've got people in your church that are only giving because they're being threatened with a curse, it, I mean, do you really want those kind of people there? <laughs> one uh, person one time said, nothing's more important than church. That's not true. That's not at all true. I know, forsake not the assembling of yourselves. I get that. But, that the assembling of yourselves together is supposed to be about Jesus Christ, not about church. Look in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And this is a perfect example, I believe, of church relevance. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. That's hypocrisy. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? And then he continues on there. Here was the thing. If you go back and you study Acts chapters 10, 11, and 13, you're going to find out that 10, 11, and 13 had events that took place prior to Galatians chapter 2. When Paul is writing Galatians chapter 2 about what happened with Peter, this is after Peter had that vision. The sheet came down, unclean creatures. God said, uh, you know, kill and eat. And Peter said, oh, I've never touched anything unclean. And God said, don't call anything that I have you know, created, that, that I've blessed, spoken over you. Don't, don't you call it unclean. Peter knew. And Peter even heard Jesus teach a kingdom truth. It's not what goes into the belly that, that defiles a man. Peter already knew this. And Peter was the one who went to the Gentiles and preached. Remember that? He had that vision, and, and he said, you know, it's not even right for us to come into the house of a Gentile. He said, but I will go in. And as he's preaching, they get filled with the Holy Ghost, or speaking in tongues. Peter knew. But yet, his church relevance mindset caused him to cave in in this situation. When you refuse to compare what you're hearing to teaching in Scripture, that's a, that is a church relevance. There are people out there, and I've heard this, they'll take a, like a, a word in the Hebrew, a word in the Greek, and they'll say, now this word means, and then they'll present it as meaning something within a particular passage, and in the process, twist the verse to mean something it doesn't. Now, it's true that that Greek or Hebrew word 
may have that particular definition as part of its definition. Now let me give you an English word to help you understand. The word green. If I say, Judy's green today. Or if I look at, I say, yeah, Judy, Judy Nelson, yeah, she's green. What did I just tell you? Did I tell you that she spilled a bucket of paint on her head? Did I tell you that she's extremely inexperienced? Did I tell you that she is environmentally focused? Or did I tell you that she looks like she's feeling sick? What did I just tell you when I said, Judy Nelson's kind of green? You don't know unless I leave it in the context of what I'm saying. Yeah, Judy Nelson, um, yeah, she's kind of green. She was painting the living room, fell off the ladder, and a bucket of paint fell on top of her. Yeah, she's green. So now you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's the way it is with some of these words in the Greek and the Hebrew. Now, if everybody who calls this their home church were here right now at this moment, everybody... I'm talking babies to old people. (laughs) If they were all here, even the people that watch and say, Grace Christian Center, that's my church. If everybody who calls this their home church were here right now, there would be people in this room who are church relevant more than they know. You say, well, how do you know that? I listen to you. And you've refused. And I'm not casting stones, guys. Look, I've gone through this myself. But there's some things in Scripture that have been imposed upon you by your former church, your former denomination, favorite preacher in the past, whatever. I don't know. But it's there. And you have refused or felt the need to go back and study it out. In part depending on the individual, in part because you like what you heard and it validates something you want to believe. Now, if you come to me and say, Pastor Jim, was that me? I mean, are you talking about me? I'm not going to... I'll say, well, maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. I'm not going to answer that. Because number one, I don't want somebody to get all mad at me. (laughs) It ain't me and I'm telling you it ain't me. No, think about what you believe and think about how much you've checked things out in Scripture. Hey, there are people who've come in here over the years and some might be in here today. They've heard me teach something and something on the inside is like, oh, I don't think so. No, I don't. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that, but, you know. Well, have you studied it out? No. <laughs> Get in the Word. Like I said, I've gone through this myself. I've had to reevaluate a bunch of things that I, I was taught, raised in church. I've been exposed to, well, I was raised Southern Baptist. I've been exposed to what you would call the non-denominational church. I was part of um, a typical uh, Pentecostal denomination and so forth. So in other words, I've heard a bunch of stuff from all over the place. And I've had to go back and reevaluate. And a lot of the stuff that I've reevaluated, leaving it in context, guess what? It ain't necessarily so. Speaking of it, it ain't necessarily so. 
How many of you remember that song? It ain't necessarily so. You remember, what was that from, Showboat? None of you know? Oh, good glory. Okay. All right, well, it was a very, 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 very famous musical. And uh, for, I, I like musicals. I, now, part of what was in that, and I did, it did not hit me until years later. And I'm sitting around think, singing the song, it ain't necessarily so, and then the choir singing, it ain't necessarily so. Well, anyway, there's a verse in there that says this, the things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. Yeah. And I'm singing it, and I didn't realize what I was singing. And then it hit me. It's like, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. Now see, a lot of people would be impacted by that simple little verse in an extremely popular musical associated with a very catchy tune. The things that you read in the Bible, yeah, they're true. So you've got world relevance, church relevance, but then here's the last one. Kingdom relevance. Now listen to this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So the question then is, are you being built? Because if you're not doing what you need to do relative to God's Word, you're not being built. And see, this is where a lot of Christians make assumptions, I'm born again, I'm in church, therefore I'm being built exactly the way God says. No, no, you're not. Because you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. What's He talking about? The Bible. He's talking about the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Not world relevance dividing, not church relevance dividing, but rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All Scripture. That, that means if you're not getting into the Bible, how can you say you're not, that you are getting into all Scripture? I'm not talking about hours of research, the Greek and the Hebrew and so every day. No. See, Isaiah 28 talks about line upon line and precept upon precept. Well, if you hop, skip, and jump, yeah. And like I said earlier, the thing about the Greek and the Hebrew words, well, if you find a verse in, in uh, you know, Scripture, and, and you do a Greek and a Hebrew, where you, oh, here, it means this. But if you leave it in the context of all Scripture, you find out, well, it can't mean that relative to what is also recorded in Romans and Ephesians and, and Galatians and in First Timothy or wherever else. You have to leave it all in context. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 11. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who, coming thither, went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. 
Are you doing that? I mean, seriously, are you doing this? Because we're talking now about kingdom relevance. You don't need to be church relevant to this church. You need to be kingdom relevant. In, um, look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And pick it up in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Now, do you understand? He just told them who he is. What do you mean? Look at verse 13. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He just told them who he is. (laughs) It's almost like he's saying, Are you listening to me? Well, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So my question to you is this, how much is your Father in heaven revealing to you? How much? Or are you relying totally on me? And Jesus says, verse 18, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So let me ask you this. How many keys do you know? Or what are the keys? Well, I don't know. And You ever heard those sermons where they talk about, he's going to give you the keys of heaven. Sometimes a preacher picks up these keys and jingle, 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 jingle. The keys to the kingdom are identified in Scripture. (laughs) How else would you know how to use them in binding and loosing? They're in Scripture. But see, if you don't get in Scripture, how are you going to know what the keys are? And I've taught on some of these in the past. I said, now this right here, this is a key, and then I teach on it and explain why it's a key. Look, Well, you don't have to look at this, but in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Every word. Genesis to Revelation. There's truth in that. Look in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And just pick it up in... Well, let's let's just start in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now, stop right there for a moment. Everything that I've been reading to you, there are people in the church, the body of Christ, who promote these ideas. They are the dogs, the evil workers, and the concision. They're, that's them being described by this. And he says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. See, the world vision has confidence in the flesh. The, the, the world relevance, the church relevance has confidence in the flesh because it's based upon what you're taught from the church perspective. You understand that? And he says, 
though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What's he talking about here? Church relevance. Church relevance. But then he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. In other words, everything that you've heard in your church past, whatever it is, you've got to be willing to toss it out the window. Like the fellow that I told you about, the, the, the person who decided, well, I'm going back into that, that church system that teaches me to pray to saints, even though I'm born again and spirit-filled. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I feel comfortable in that, I feel comfortable and secure and safe in that system. That's because you do not understand the fullness of who you are in Christ. You do not truly understand born again. And so, he says, I count all those things as lost for Christ. He says, yea, doubtless, I count all things, but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now we're getting into the, the, the kingdom relevance. I count loss uh, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. <laughs> There are a lot of people, some might even be in this room, you've got things from world relevance, church relevance, you need to count as dung in your life because it's not helping you in your kingdom relevance and your spiritual maturity. He says, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You have a lot of Christians out there trying to establish a righteousness for themselves by embracing world relevance, and then you have a lot of Christians trying to establish righteousness for themselves by embracing a church relevance. And he goes on to say, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. What is the power of his resurrection? What he's saying here is, I want to know the fullness of the power of the resurrected life that I received the moment that I was born again and I passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. I was raised from spiritual death and I want to know the power of that resurrected life. And he says, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead, what's he talking about there? He's talking about living to the fullness of Christ, being fully conformed to the glory, the image of the glory of Christ. He is the person who was raised from the dead. Now he is my standard. I want to attain unto that standard. Not as though, verse 12, I had already attained, neither were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. What was he apprehended of Christ Jesus for? To be like Jesus in this world. Which is the same thing that we have been apprehended or born again for. It is to be like Jesus in this world. He says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. In other words, I'm still growing. I'm still maturing. I'm still developing in this. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, all of us, body of Christ, therefore, as many as be perfect, or as many that are desiring this, the same goal that I have, you be thus minded. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. You know what's happening in this message today? God is revealing world relevance and church relevance to people who are holding on to it. 
He's revealing this in this message. And he says, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, live so, do the same, are on this same path as you have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, he's saying you've got some people in the body of Christ who are professing one thing, living a different way, and he says you need to understand they're enemies. They are enemies in all of this. Listen. Born again does not mean that you are not world relevant or church relevant. It means you're born again. Christians, listen closely now. Because what I'm getting ready to say is so opposed to what is taught in so many churches. Christians are not called to be relevant to the world society, a church, or a denomination. Christians are called to be kingdom and Christ relevant. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. So then it comes down to this. Do you really believe God's Word? Do you? Because if you do, you cannot be world relevant and you cannot be church relevant. You can only be kingdom relevant as a believer. We absolutely, all of us, must guard our hearts and minds in all of this. You need to watch what you're hearing. You need to be cautious about the terms that you're using. Systemic versus systematic. Now you understand the difference. We need to watch out if you've got kids, what are they bringing home? I mean, what's coming out of their mouth that you didn't teach them? We need to understand that the Bible has to be the standard that we live by. Jesus even said in Matthew 24, hey, <laughs> false prophets are going to rise up. And He wasn't simply talking out in the world. He's talking in the body of Christ. They're here. They're here now. And then to, there in Matthew 24, he says, only those who endure to the end are going to make it with me for eternity. Guys, we're being impacted whether we know it or not. We cannot allow that impacting to move in. You know, it, it, it's one thing, if it's raining outside, it's raining outside. But you don't go outside naked. You put on clothes and you put on a raincoat so that you're not impacted by the rain. You understand what I mean by that? We've got to put on the Word of God. We've got to put on the anointing of God and we've got to guard ourselves. And you need to understand this in closing. <laughs> Amen. You need to be ready to let relationships be severed. Because there are people in the body of Christ who are embracing the worldview more than what they realize can two walk together except they be agreed. I want to walk with Jesus Christ. 